Emilio's stealing some of my thunder. It seems like he wants to teach this. It seems like in assigning me the Sunday school hour, he's assigning me his what was initially his lifelong dream <laughs> to expound on the Puritans. Well, it's not every day that you get an invitation to a church to give an invitation to Puritan literature and to deliver an address or a Sunday school on why we should read the Puritans. And so... Uh, it's a privilege, and uh, I hope the Lord uh, blesses this time to you. We should stop at what time? Uh, ten, ten till two thirty. You mean? Okay, so at two twenty. Two twenty. I've never heard anybody call a, a half hour mark a ten till, so it's confusing. <laughs> okay, well, uh, let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we, as we contemplate Your past dealings with Your church and with Your servants, and we consider Your mighty acts of providence in history, and how You used a group of highly flawed men and sinners just like us to so impact Your church and to change the course of world history, we stand humbled and amazed. Humbled, Father, because we recognize that our forefathers in the faith often possessed graces and gifts in many areas in which we are greatly lacking. And at the same time, humbled at the magnitude of Your great grace that You take sinners who are by nature children of wrath, and You use them to serve such mighty purposes and ends in Your kingdom. Father, as we now embark on this brief time of study or exposition about the Puritans, I pray that You would bless this, Father. Give me illumination of understanding and clarity of articulation. Give to your people, Father, open minds, open hearts to receive from you and the truths that come from your spirit. We pray and ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Church history is really the history of God's dealings with his people. You know... World history exists because church history exists. If we want to talk about a biblical worldview of what the Lord is doing and how, is he, how, how He is accomplishing His great plan to sum up all things in Christ, the reality is, is that world history exists because the church exists, not vice versa. We, we, we tend to think contrary to that in our society, you know, nowadays and in, and in our Christian culture. You know, we, we tend to think that church history is kind of this subcategory of world history. That what's really important is what's going on with Trump and the White House. And the church is just this little flock, this little remnant, this little people that 
really is not having much of an impact of society at large. And if we're not careful, we can, we can tend to think that the church is somewhat secondary in the purposes of the plan of God. The church is not secondary. Part of the whole plan of redemption is that Christ, through His redemptive work, would exhibit His manifold wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers through the church. And so, even though God and His absolute, exhaustive, universal sovereignty over the world and over everything that transpires... The Lord has a special care and a special exercise of His sovereignty and the special care and fatherly disposition toward the church. The church is the object of the special providential care and workings of God. And so when we study any aspect of church history, like Puritan, the Puritan era, and Puritan theology, uh, we should we should understand that in the first place, as we're coming to this, that we're not just studying some obscure group of antiquated people that lived in the past and don't have very much that they can teach us nowadays and so forth, but really, they were a mighty movement in 17th century England that spilled over into surrounding countries such that it changed, as I prayed, the course of history. And the Lord's dealings with mankind on the earth as the outworking of the great promise of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whereby He said, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Should I turn this on? Okay, we're on. (laughs) And as this group of of ministers and, and people that we call the Puritans lived in that Puritan era under persecution, under tyranny, under severe temptation, under pressure from society, being an utterly cultural, uh, countercultural movement in reality, that the Lord in His special and fatherly care when it comes to His dealings with His people on the earth and His promise to preserve His church, much of that during the 17th century was really focused on and honed in on His dealings with His people through this group we call the Puritans. It's a mightily important time in the history of the world. Now why should we study the Puritans? I have just a little bit of time here, and if I'm not careful, I'll just expound Matthew 16 for the whole time, and then our time will be over. Uh, Because I love Matthew 16. I love the promise of Christ when He said, I will will keep my church, I will preserve my church, my church will advance, my church will prevail, my church will batter the gates of hell and, and, and... take out souls as the, as the booty, as the, the ransom purchased by Christ. And the church will advance. And as we study world history, we see so many uh, pressures to the contrary. 
We see the world rise up. We see Satan and his hordes rise up and and focus their attacks on the church. And nevertheless, the church survives and the church prevails. And the gospel goes forth. And the elect hear it uh, unto the ends of the earth. And the Lord brings them in. And so you know what church history is. My my professor over here at the seminary, he began a recent course I'm taking on church history. He told us church history is ultimately the tale of the two seeds as it continues to play out. Now Christ is the ultimate, consummate, you know, absolute, perfect seed of the woman. He's the redeemer. But in Christ, we are of the seed of Abraham and we are of the seed of the woman. And Satan has much seed in the world. And so church history is the outworking of the tale of two seeds. If you study the Puritan era, that's what it's all about. It's about strife. It's about war. It's about conflict. It's about persecution. It's about bloodshed. It's about holding fast our convictions unto death. It's about division. It's about many, many things. But in the midst of that all, there is a glory to it. There is a glory in the proclamation of the Gospel. There is a glory in what... what what uh, Pastor Ramos said of the Puritans having a high view of God. Their view of God triumphs over all. Their view of God determines their worldview. Their, their view of God determines their interpretation of persecution and incarceration and even in martyrdom. Their view of God interprets all of this such that the sovereignty of God, the absolute, reigning, universal, exhaustive sovereignty of God becomes the glorious hermeneutical lens by which they interpret not only all of theology, and justly so, but also all of their contemporary events and all of world history and everything that transpired, even if their children would be slaughtered in front of their faces. And so the Puritans have much to offer us. Now, as we, as we begin here, uh, tur- turn with me please to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Because there is a text here that I think just clashes with the contemporary American Christian mindset. Even in many Reformed circles, when it comes to how the Apostle Paul uses a particular phrase here. 1 Timothy 1, he says, starting in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, and for the unholy and profane, and murderers of fathers, and murderers of mothers, and for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is anything, any other thing that is contrary to... Now, he doesn't say ethics. We would almost expect him to say ethics or morality or biblical Christian values or something like that. But he says sound doctrine. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So you see what he's saying. He's saying fornication is contrary to sound doctrine. 
sin is contrary to sound doctrine. Now you see what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is defining sound doctrine not only as the body of the comprehensive, systematic, construct of truth that we believe and embrace, this thing that we call systematic theology, but he's defining sound doctrine as something that is all-embracive and that includes and incorporates the totality of one's life such that what one does with their bodily organs is in included in the phrase sound doctrine. It is all inclusive of the totality of life. That is what sound doctrine is. And if there's something that we need to get out of our mind in in contemporary Christianity and even in Reformed circles today, because this is not in continuity with the Puritans and with Calvin, something we need to get out of our minds is that somebody can believe in and practice sound doctrine and not live it. That is so anti-biblical. If we go to Titus chapter 1, we see another text. And Paul, he, he just kind of says these things in passing. You know, he says, Paul, chapter 1, verse 1, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness the acknowledgement of the truth accords with godliness and so when it comes to the apprehension and embracing of the truth of scripture the correct knowledge of the truth does not merely entail a cognitive or intellectual or mental apprehension of the truth in question, but it includes an embracing of the truth that not only informs the mind, but impacts and transforms the heart and governs and molds and conforms the very affections of the heart to those of the heart of Christ, and it transforms the will and empowers the will to put said truth into practice. And that's why Jesus said, this is the eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Did you know that in the Reformation era, that was the most expounded upon text? John seventeen three, Eternal life is not just a mental apprehension of some content of information. Eternal life, the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God touches the practice. And as Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, says in, in the combined set of his works and the preface, he says that our knowledge of the truth of God only goes so far as our practice and no further. And if we're not experiencing it and if we're not practicing it, we cannot properly be said to have understood the knowledge of the truth. So what we tend to do is we divorce the information part of it from the experiential and the practical parts of it. The Puritans, brethren, the Puritans would utterly abominate that with all their hearts and souls. They would abominate much of the things that pass for truth nowadays where there is so little application and so little emphasis on application. So in the first place, we should study the Puritans because they demonstrate par excellence what it is to believe in and to, and to formulate and to teach and to embrace and to proclaim to the world what we call experiential theology. Experiential theology. Now what is that? It is not experientialism. 
It's not to be confused with, you know, what we call in a certain aspect of philosophy, existentialism. They were not existentialists, philosophically speaking. They believed in biblical, scriptural theology. But they demonstrate experiential theology with excellence in a way that no other body of pastors or theologians or teachers in the history of the church has ever done and is not doing today in such a way that they have many, many things that they can teach us and that we can profit from to the nourishment and growth of our souls. Now the Puritans. Who were the Puritans? Uh, The Puritans were, in my opinion... the body of pastors and theologians in the history of the church whose writings are, generally speaking, the most biblically saturated, theologically profound, doctrinally precise, devotionally warm, and experientially acquainted in the history of the church. I'm not aware of any other group in the history of the church that even comes close to the doctrinal precision, to the biblical exposition, and to the experiential acquaintance with the inner workings of theology, such as the Puritans. Let me just whet our appetite a little bit here. Uh, two, Two of my favorite Puritans are on both ends of the spectrum. One of them is John Bunyan who is also my son's favorite Puritan. And the other is John Owen. John Owen tends to be the most complex, complicated, elevated, uh, sometimes somewhat esoteric of the Puritans. He had a brilliant mind and he expounds truth in such a way that his genius is made manifest. It truly is. Bunyan was an uneducated tinker from Bedford. Bunyan hammered on things with metal all his life. That's what he did. And when the Lord saved his soul, and even before then, when he began to experience something of the deep dealings of God and stirrings of conscience and the terrors of the threatenings and thunderings of the law upon his conscience and so forth, he began to saturate himself with Scripture because he knew that he could only find peace in the book of God. And so he became so saturated with the text of Scripture that he found it, I think, pretty well nigh impossible uh, after his conversion to speak without using scriptural language and to integrate uh, even biblical verses into his common everyday jargon and speech. You read Bunyan and it's just Bible all over the place. I mean, he's writing out whole Bible verses one after another in his works. We know a Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan is famous for being, you know, the metaphorical, uh, you know, allegorical uh, storyteller, the great Pilgrim's Progress, the second best sold book in the history of the church and so forth. And, you know, and, and, and that, that usually is the extent of our knowledge of John Bunyan. But let me tell you, he became somewhat of a mighty theologian in his own right. Now, he wasn't formally educated. And he's not employing a whole lot of the, you know, the high reform scholasticism that was being taught at, you know, at, at Oxford and things like that. And that was being, uh, uh, you know, ex- exposited by some of the great thinkers like William Ames and, and, and even Owen himself and so forth. Uh, 
he, he had a way of speaking on the level of the common man. He wasn't educated. But if you, if you read his doctrinal writings, so this, this, this is the first thing I want to say here. Don't just read Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. Read his theological writings. Read a few sighs from hell. It will break your heart and put your face on the floor to soak the carpet with tears for the sake of the lost. Read Lazarus and the rich man or read his book called Justification by an Imputed Righteousness or read his other book called The Pharisee and the Publican. For the most part, they're compilations of his sermons. And when you read this, it so invigorates the soul that you wonder how anybody could possibly sit under that kind of preaching and not get converted. He had a way of gripping men's hearts, speaking to the heart, preaching to the heart. Owen is on the other side. So anyway... Bunyan, he would say things like this. This is found in his uh, Dying Sayings in volume one of his uh, three compiled works published by Banner of Truth. He said, No sin against God can be little, because it is against the great God of heaven and earth. But if the sinner can find out a little God, it may be easy to find out little sins. And what he's saying there is sin is a big deal. Why? Because God is a big deal. And our view of the magnitude and the heinousness and the gravity of sin is directly proportionate to our view of the majesty and the greatness and the exaltedness and the sublimity and the glory of God. Low view of God, low view of sin. I wonder what's happening in mainstream Christian contemporary uh, society and culture in this place. Christianity is dying in this nation. And it's because there is so much knowledge, biblical knowledge with so little application. We need a high view of God so that recovering a high view of God, we may have a serious view of sin. You know, the Puritans would write books called things like uh, The Sinfulness of Sin, Ralph Benning. The original title of that work was The Plague of Plagues. He wrote it after a great plague of, of death had struck England. Thousands died all over the place. You read about plagues during medieval times. Well, the Puritan era is kind of spilling over. There are new leaves being turned. There are new influences in place. There is a great awakening to biblical truth. Education is becoming to become more prevalent in society and so forth. And and even Aristotelian philosophy and 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 logic and and manners of thinking. They're they're beginning to illuminate society and society is growing and it's it's becoming more uh, e- even able to read and, and, and expanding in its knowledge and so forth and so we, we think of it as a different era from the medieval era but the fact is is while there's different uh, things that are going on and it's not a part of the medieval era per se it's the post-reformation era the fact is is when it comes to some really primitive and ugly things that characterize the medieval age the dark ages some of those things spill over right into the puritan era and one of those things was like you know things like bubonic plague before the invention of antibiotics and so this devastates society I mean, he has friends, he has church members, he has family members that have been, been, been killed by this thing. And it's, it's terrible, it's ugly. And so he writes a treatise and he calls it the plague of plagues. And he teaches in that treatise that the true plague of all plagues and the true root of all evils is sin. 
and that it's infinitely worse than what could befall us or the afflictions that befall us or the dark providences that come upon us. And so, Puritans write on subjects like the existence and attributes of God, a pretty much thousand-page treatise by Stephen Charnock about who God is. That work has not been surpassed to this day. Frame is written on the doctrine of God. There are some important theological errors in that in that book, uh, uh, despite of much helpful, uh, much helpful truth in it. There are important theological errors that are actually anti-reformed and anti-Puritan, and the Puritans themselves would cringe to hear and to read some of the things that he says in that book that are contrary to reformed orthodoxy and reformed confessional Christianity, as historically defined. No, no book, no book has surpassed Stephen Charnock's existence and attributes of God. Uh, you know, Bunyan, I mean, there's all kinds of quotes I could pull here from Bunyan and all this. The Puritans, okay, the Puritans were nonconformists. That's what they were. The Puritans were a group of Protestant pastor theologians who were nonconformists in 17th century England through the tyranny of King Charles I and Archbishop William Laud, the Church of England began to require uh, the observance of high liturgical, sacramentalist elements of worship in the church. And the Puritans resisted. And the Church of Scotland existed. Now, just to define this, the Puritans, properly speaking, belonged to to England. 17th century England. That's it. Uh, Ministers in Scotland are not properly called Puritans. Ministers in New England and the colonies are not properly called Puritans. Ministers in the Netherlands, the Low Countries, are not properly called Puritans. Puritans are from England. Puritan is an English term. Actually, they didn't call themselves that. It originated as a derogatory term to insult them, uh, basically to call them the holier than thou's. The Puritans. In other words, the Pharisees. The Pur- Puritan Pharisees. And it's a name that just kind of somewhat unfortunately stuck in history and they came to be known by that term. Uh, but in their in their day, they just preferred to identify themselves as a nonconformist because they refused to conform to uh, elements that the Church of England had instituted that were not commanded by Scripture. You see, and the Puritans insisted on the regulative principle in worship that we are forbidden to do in worship anything that God has not commanded, either explicitly in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence derived from Scripture. And so the Puritans could not participate in the Church of England. Uh, for, for the most part, they were the nonconformists. Now, there are Puritan thinkers uh, that were a part of the Church of England. They're very Puritanical in their manner of thinking and manner of doing theology. A lot of times they're considered a part of the movement, even though they, they belong to it. Uh, but this, this group of ministers, they were the nonconformists. Uh, they did not believe in works righteousness. They did not believe that our justification is based on our sanctification. Uh, they, they did not believe that unless one attains to such a circumspect manner of living that they can pretty much be categorized as living in sinless perfection, that they're not saved. Uh, the Puritan, there are many, many bad views of the Puritans. 
the, the Puritans were not a monolithic movement. Richard Baxter held to a deviant view of particular redemption. He denied it. He was an Amaraldian. He believed in a universal redemption. He believed that the decree of God with regard to the logical order of the eternal decrees of God, that the decree of God to redeem people transpired prior to the fall and so therefore was a, uh, it was a universal kind of thing. that They, 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 they really they messed up basically the, the decrees of God in such a way that they believed that the atonement was universal. He was also a neonomian. Neonomian. You know what that means in, in modern parlance. Legalist. He was a legalist. Richard Baxter. Now that doesn't mean that his writings are, are so tainted with legalism that they're invaluable, that, that they're no longer valuable to us. But what it means is there, there is a bit of a legalistic tinge or bent that that tinges, that flavors some of the writings of Richard Baxter that you should be aware of. However, I often say this, when it comes to the theologians of the Puritans, the best theologians are the particular Baptists because they were the most right. I say that without shame in a, in a Credo Baptist church here. I've been wanting to say that for several weeks. <laughs> so the particular Baptists are the best theologians, but the most brilliant of the theologians is John Owen. The most articulate, the most profound, the most is, is Owen, okay? But the best practical theologian of the Puritans is Baxter. It is. It just is. And I almost hate to admit it because of his deviant theology in some ways, but he, he is, do you know, he wrote, I, I have, an old minister died when I was, I was doing a, a module over in a South Carolina and an old minister died, and his daughter approached me and asked me if I would like to receive some of the books that he left behind. And I looked over the books, and I saw the works of Richard Baxter in it. I said, I, I want that. And so I, I inherited these four big volumes, I mean these big bricks of a thing of the works of Richard Baxter. One entire volume of that is called The Christian Directory. And you know what that is? It is a manual of biblical counseling. A manual of biblical counseling. Depending on the print edition, this, this one is about a thousand pages in tiny print, tiny print analogous to the print in the, the two volumes of the works of uh, Jonathan, Owen, uh, Jonathan Edwards published by Hendrickson and Banner of Truth. If you've seen that print, it's like almost microscopic. Well, the, the print is like that. What does he do in this? There, there, there is over a thousand questions and answers. So what do you do in this case? What do you do in that case? And so forth. Let me read to you one of the things that he says. Uh, he says, uh, question number 174. You've got to love the Puritans. It doesn't stop with 174. It goes up to 274, 374, 4th. I mean, this is like a manual for pastoral counseling, biblical counseling. He says, what books, especially of theology, should one choose for want of money or time can read but few? So you don't have much money, you don't have much time. What books should you read? I told you the Puritans were very concerned about all aspects of life. They're even concerned about what you do with your limited time and resources in terms of the literature you read. I often say this to our people in Mexico. I tell them, brethren, don't read good books. Don't waste your time. Read the best books. Because there is a sufficient quantity of the best books that you can spend most of your life reading them. 
and still never exhaustive. Here's what uh, Baxter considered to be the best books. He said, um, in a list that he, he spoke of here, he said, quote, the poorest or smallest library that is tolerable, is what he's commenting on, consists of a Bible, concordance, commentary. So there you see the preeminence of Scripture. The, the, the Puritans were robust biblicists. They believed in the Word of God. They were submitted to the Word of God. They, they would tell anybody, you don't have much time, can't read anything else, spend quality time in the Word of God every day. And get a concordance, man. And get a, get a commentary. And, 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 and read the text of Scripture and utilize the tools that are available at your disposal that help you to delve into the depths of the text of Scripture. There is no excuse. You know why you know, Bible reading and, and profiting from the Word of God is at a, really an all-time low in the history of the church in comparison to the availability of Bibles and biblical knowledge and tools and information we have? Why? Why is it at an all-time low in our generation? Laziness. Laziness. Get a concordance. Look things up or get Logos Bible software. Do, do something, but find, find tools. Find ways to dig into the text of Scripture. So that's what he's constantly his people. He says Bible, concordance, commentary, and then he says catechisms. Something on the doctrines of the gospel and as many affectionate practical English writers as you can get. And then he gives a list of, of about 60 practical English writers. And according to J.I. Packer, all but three of them were Puritans. And then he repeats, get as many as you can get. <laughs> so out of the 60 writers, uh, 50, 57 are, are Puritans. So Bible concordance, uh, uh, commentary... Catechisms, why? Because they summarize deep, profound, broad theological truths in concise language that crystallize the essence of the, the doctrines and facilitate the, 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 the learning of those doctrines. So, you know, confessions, historical confessions of the church, catechisms, summaries of doctrine. You want to get like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you know, Grudem systematic theology or others, Burkhoff, and th things that help us to understand doctrine so we can rightly interpret the Word of God. Uh, something on the doctrines of the gospel. Hey, I mean, we can be wrong about a lot of things, but let us not be wrong about the gospel. So you need something on the doctrines of the gospel. Uh, and as many and as many Puritan writers as you can get, affectionate English writers. Can I do a little parentheses here? I'm 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 like out of time. Uh, when I said Puritans belong to England, properly speaking, the Puritan movement spills out into the Church of Scotland. It spills out into the Netherlands. It spills out into the colonies of New England. So that even though Jonathan Edwards is not technically a Puritan, it's okay to call him a Puritan in the broad <laughs> sense of the term. Uh, the same with Wilhelmus Brockel in, in the Netherlands, and, and the same with uh, man, many others. So in, in summary here, let, let me just give you maybe some rapid-fire reasons to read the Puritans. Uh, Can I ask you to, to qualify something? Yes. Modern scholars or some of those 
I'm not a Puritan scholar, okay? I'm a, I'm a Puritan student. I'm a Puritan student. Uh, yeah, Beaky could probably give you a... I've, I've heard him answer this question. He, he, gives, he throws out a few dates, and I don't, I don't recall the specific dates tied to certain events. Uh, the, 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 really, the normal one that most people point to is the Act of Uniformity. Uh, I, I forget the particular year it was published. Uh, or decreed uh, by the King of England in the Act of Unifor- Uniformity required uh, conformity to uh, the, the Church of England's prayer book and, and some other things that characterize the Erastian high liturgy of the Church of England. The Puritans could not follow. I believe it was Charles II that decreed it. And that resulted in what we call the Great Ejection, where over 2,000 ministers were expelled from the Church of England. Over 2,000. People ask, what happened to the Puritan movement? Why did they just die out? Because they were expelled from the Church of England. They lost their living. They, they lost their lives in many cases. They were persecuted. They fled. Many came over to the colonies and, uh, of the New World and just died in the cold winters and so forth. I mean, they, they, they struggled for their very survival and then they just died out as a movement because of the tyrannical demands for conformity to the Church of England enforced with the power of the sword. So they dwindled away. Uh, so a, a lot will say that, but it's, I mean, the Puritans were already there before they were obje- uh, uh, ejected and became officially nonconformists. They were already against those things. They already had their theology and their beliefs. So I just like to say 17th century. William Perkins is known as the father of English Puritanism. If you have not read the works of William, William Perkins, you need to read them. Oh. William Perkins is the one, I mean, he, he pioneered many of the thoughts that become characteristic of puritanical thought and theological process and preaching. He wrote the homiletical manual and he gave it the great title, I love it, The Art of Prophesying. He's talking about preaching the Word of God, expositing the Word of God. It's a manual of homiletics about how to preach the Word of God so as to edify souls, not just to give information, but to edify souls. And that's what it's all about. Uh, William Perkins pioneered uh, casuistry. Have you heard of casuistry? Casuistry was uh, pioneered in the Middle Ages by uh, uh, Roman Catholic uh, monks and theologians. It became to be implemented uh, quite a bit by the Jesuits. Uh, and uh, they, they, they really, casuistry re- refers to case law. Case law. And uh, in terms of Roman Catholicism, just the priests practice it. And they implemented it for when people came for confession and they dealt with really controversial things or they needed to sort things out. And so they had case law that was really broken down for them that they could apply. Well, William Perkins comes and he says, there's a great concept here. The concept is counseling. Biblical counseling in the case of William Perkins. Casuistry. Literally, cases of conscience. When believers struggle with cases of conscience or with questions about the will of God for their life and all the diverse areas of their life, what, what casuist, Puritan casuistry does, as is, is pioneered by William Perkins, is it goes to the Word of God. 
in order to define what the Word of God says about that. But there are many particular situations that happen that are not clearly defined by the Word of God. And so first he goes to the Word of God to draw out the general principles from text and harmonizes and systematizes them. And then he draws out the inferences and implications of these biblical texts in order to apply them to the situation in question. Baxter's A Christian Directory is an over thousand page treaty of Puritan casuistry. That's what it is. Cases of conscience, casuistry, constantly. William Perkins pioneered that. William Perkins pioneered plain preaching uh, and, and it, in, in, in the sense that he gave it, a, 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 he gave new life to it, and he introduced it to many students who then implemented it in, in England. So, Reformation Heritage Books is republishing the works of William Perkins for the first time in hundreds of years. Uh, during the generation of William Perkins, his works sold in England. This is at the end of the 1500s, beginning of 1600s. It was right at the beginning of 17th century. You know, a century. We say 17th century. That's the 1600s. Right at the beginning of the 1600s, his works are selling more in England, being purchased more, being distributed more than the works of Luther, Calvin, and Theodore Beza combined. He was the reformer of England. And that touches American Christianity, historically speaking, in ways that we don't even realize. Uh, okay, now, now my little list. Uh, Casuistry. Puritans excel in casuistry. You want to learn biblical counseling? Learn Puritan casuistry. Puritans excel in evangelism. Puritan evangelism is not like modern evangelism. I could speak for hours on this. I'm not going to do it. I'll speak for just a few seconds. I've given messages on Puritan evangelism. Modern evangelism has this idea that let's uh, go to China with 25,000 tracks and let's, let's let these tracks go flying over a period of three and a half days so that we evangelize 20, 25,000 people in three and a half days. Puritans would say, that's not evangelism. Because they're not understanding. The people are not understanding. You can't just expect to give some little reductionistic overly concise and simplistic summary of the gospel to everybody and expect them to comprehend it. Now, if that's all we can do, it's good. But, you know, we should do more than that. And so the Puritans really developed a pedagogical method for evangelism that consisted of declaring the whole counsel of God with a focus on Christ crucified. The essence of the gospel as we expound the whole counsel of God. We inform with the whole council. They were not against preaching the sovereignty of God and evangelism to the lost. William Perkins actually, he did that. He was one of the pioneers of that. And then he also was one of the first to really begin to teach on predestination, the sovereign decree of God with a view to Christian assurance, with consolation, with pastoral implications in mind to comfort and console Christians. See, they wanted to take these high lofty doctrines of profound theology and they wanted to apply them practically to people's lives so that we could live in piety. Calvin wrote his Institutes as a manual for piety. That's what he says in the introduction. It's a manual for piety. He didn't say it in order to in, inform these overswelled heads of these young budding theologians that spend too much time uh, getting their theology from blogs and thinking that they know everything to such an extent that nobody can teach them anything. P Calvin wrote it for piety. Piety, which is reverence toward God. It's living coram Deo in the face of God, is in the presence of God, uh, in, in, in dependence on God, with faith toward God, being worshipful of God. 
piety. That's Puritan literature. Puritan literature is logic on fire. It's theology on fire for the sake of personal piety. That's what it is. Puritans invented the gospel track. I'm not exaggerating. The Puritans invented the gospel track. The first one was Richard Baxter's A Call to the Unconverted. The second one was Joseph Aline's now Banner of Truth prints it, you know, in that little Puritan paper book, and they've retitled it. Contrary to the authorization of Joseph Aline, they never received his authorization. I can say that with all authority. They've called it a sure guide to heaven. But the original title was An Alarm to Unconverted Sinners. And I can see why they retitled it for our namby-pamby generation, but... And, and when that book was published during his generation, 70,000 copies were distributed. People were reading it. He didn't write a little two-paragraph or two-sentence gospel message. He wrote a book on the doctrine of conversion, saying things like Baxter. Okay, well then, Baxter said, you must be a new man or you'll be a dead man confronting, piercing with the truth. That's what the Puritans did. So when it comes to casuistry, when it comes to theology, when it comes to doctrinal precision, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to prayer, oh, there is no greater writing in the history of the church than what the Puritans write on prayer. And so forth. So many aspects of theology. So. Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, number two, that was easy enough. <laughs> um, what's your favorite Puritan book that you guys read? Um, I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> Not all Puritan books are excellent. Not all are equally helpful. Puritanism was not a monolithic movement. They don't, they don't all think exactly the same. They don't all write exactly the same. They don't all teach exactly the same. Uh, I, I think uh, what was very timely for me was, was two books. They very much helped me in my walk. When I was going through my, my crisis in Mexico and I was losing my voice and I didn't know if I would ever re- uh, be able to recuperate my vocal capacity so as to ever be able to preach again and I thought my life was falling apart and nothing was working and so forth, two books really, really helped me. One was Thomas Brooks, The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. And the other was Thomas Boston. He's not a Puritan, properly speaking, but he's a Puritan in the broad sense of the term. He was Church of Scotland Presbyterian. His book called A Crook and the Lot from the proverb that who can make straight what God has made crooked. The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod speaks of God's rod of discipline, of chastisement, of dark... Okay, one sentence. Dark providences... And then coming to the point of being able to simply acquiesce and submit to the dark providence and to kiss the rod that smites us. The Lord used that to turn my heart from discontent and complaining under my bitter dark providences 
to be able to receive it from the hand of a merciful Father, sanctified for my good. Thank you.